Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Malachi. Uh, We're going to be working through this book over the next few weeks, and we are going to consider the first five verses of chapter one together this morning. Uh, As you make your way there, allow me to give you some of the context of the book. Uh, The last time that Uh, I was here with you all. You got a little bit of a reprieve last week with a supply preacher. But the last time I was with you all, we considered Psalm chapter 137. And if you remember, the context of that particular song was uh, it had just been the experience of the Babylonian exile. And if you remember the Babylonians, they come in, they destroy after siege, they destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and then they take the people out, they they kick a bunch of them out, and they, they go into exile, and it's really bad. Malachi happens after that. And so the 70 years of the Babylonian exile have expired, and the people have returned to the land. They've even rebuilt the temple. Malachi is actually a contemporary with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so it's kind of 100-ish, nobody knows for sure, years since the temple was destroyed. It's now been rebuilt. And the people have this expectation of awesomeness. Right? They, they expect the, the nations to stream to Israel. They expect their city to prosper. Uh, they even expect the Messiah to, have, to return soon or to have returned to bring Israel to just prominence throughout the whole world. But that's not what's happened. The people have returned to the land and the temple. It is rebuilt, but it's not half of what it once was. So the people begin to feel as if God's promises are empty. Feel as if God does not really care, so why should they? Within the hearts of the people, we learn from from the book of Malachi, there has developed an apathy, a half-heartedness, a boredom with religion. this before in your routine of coming to church week after week or attending that bible study doing your quiet time when you sit down to read god's word and pray it just feels empty as if god is is distant as if he doesn't really care and so why should you care Malachi writes his book to remind God's people that indeed God does care, that he's been faithful to them, and that they should care too. Malachi informs us, God loves you. That's going to be the main idea this morning, that God has loved you. And the exhortation is that you should love God. That's really the bulk of Malachi's concern in these first five verses this morning. Malachi actually is really easy to trace out in terms of how we're going to divide the book. It's made up of six conversations. Uh, People prefer the word disputations because they're kind of arguments that are going on. Uh, But you know, like if I have an argument with my wife, I usually call it a conversation. And so uh, Malachi is going to write out for us people. And what's going to happen is is God kind of says he'll make a statement that's true. The people will then question that statement. 
and then God will say, well, this is how it's true, right? That, that's, that's what's going on, and you can see that reflected in your outline this morning. God's going to say that he's loved the people. Uh, the people are going to question God's love, and then God's going to prove his love through his blessing and his curse. The proof uh, for uh, the people of Israel that God has loved them, he's going to say, I have chosen you. I've chosen to love you. That's proof of my love. And the other proof of God's love is that he's not going to give the people what they deserve, which is his curse. And so with those things in mind, let's pray and approach the book of Malachi together. Father, we need you this morning. We, we need you to comfort us with your word. Fill us with your spirit. To put your songs in our mouths. To put rhythm into our steps. God, teach us once more again this morning to leap for joy at the great salvation that has been brought to us in Christ Jesus, to be astounded by your marvelous love for people as wretched as ourselves. God, we, we do not deserve to call you Father. We do not deserve to be loved by you. And yet, the likes of us. Help us to hear that truth and to say, wow, what a God. What a Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book opens up, it says a pronouncement or an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now a ton of ink has been spilled here because Malachi's name, if you bring it across quite literally, means my messenger. And so the debate is this, is Malachi an actual person who existed in time and space or is this kind of a, a pseudonym, right? Uh, he's just writing as my messenger, the messenger of the Lord. I think Malachi is an actual person, but I don't think it's all that important if, if, he, if this is a pseudonym or if this is an actual person, right? Uh, at the end of the day, the message is here before us, and that is what Malachi, God's messenger, was concerned with. He was concerned with carrying his burden of God's word to the people of God. This is the word of the Lord to Israel. That's what's important here, not the messenger. The people of God are going to hear the words of God. This is significant. For it is the word of God that created all things. It's the word of God that calls and keeps his people. It is the word of It is the word of God proclaimed that brings us into relationship with God. If God does not reveal himself to us through his word, then we would not know God. Romans tells us that faith comes from hearing. We hear and believe the message of the gospel. Faith is created within us. God's word is powerful. It's 
life-changing and world-creating. And it's this word of God that Malachi yields as he approaches Israel in this disputation. The first word that God would say to this apathetic, bored, religious people, their half-hearted attempts at piety, is this. This is what God says. I have loved you. You don't have to be really, really smart to understand this if you've read your Bible, right? I have loved you, God says to his people. This is just true. I think Malachi starts here because all sin ultimately comes from a failure to grasp God's love for you. And on the other side of that is all acts of obedience to God that we are returning to him. And so, so if you experience the love of God, what happens within you is it becomes your delight to do the works of God. It is God's love that compels us to offer the entirety of our lives to him as worship, as an act of love. But he says to the people, I, I have loved you. This should be fairly self-evident. Now you look back, I think immediately of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, which read this way. God says, You are a holy people, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has set his heart on you and chose you, not because you are more numerous than any other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has loved this people. If he didn't, they wouldn't even exist. Nevertheless, the people say, how have you loved us? They question God's love. And immediately we go, how, how could you? How could you question God's love? When I was thinking through this, I went, well, well how could you? You've done this. You've doubted God's love and care for you. The romantic relationship you had didn't work out the way that you wanted. That person you were praying for passed away and didn't recover. You spilt coffee on your pants in the morning. God, if you loved me, why would you let something so ridiculous happen to me? It's going to ruin my entire day. You, really care? you don't even care enough to stop a cup of coffee from spilling onto my lap. How have you loved me? I think we, like Israel, suffer from recency bias. Uh, uh, what have you done for me lately mentality. A lack of thanksgiving. 
We don't obey passages like Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Or Philippians 4, 4-7. through Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Instead, we worry about everything, devote ourselves to ourselves, and complain when things don't work out the way we want to. We, we forget God's love because we've become so good at magnifying our disappointment and minimizing God's work in our lives. Israel has done the same. They've gotten to the humdrum of has not happened, what they expect to happen, and then they've drawn a line and said, this means that God doesn't care about us. But God will answer the how have you loved us question. Never mind that it is obstinate and offensive. Right? I mean, just, just think about, like, I think about if my um, four-year-old would say to me, how have you loved me, Daddy? I would be upset. What do you mean, how have I loved you? change your diapers for a long time, I helped you get potty trained, I feed you, I clothe you, I put up with you. Like, like, what do you mean, how have I loved you? My whole life has been built around loving you. Same thing with um, if I went home to my spouse and she had spent all day caring for my children and she'd made a meal and done some dishes, made some laundry, you know, and I walk in and say, how have you loved me? Right? Like, that's stupid of me to say. What, what do you mean? This is a ridiculous question. How have you loved me? This is a, an offensive question for the people to question God's love for them. Look at how he responds. How have you loved us, the people say. And God says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. God says, in effect, you mean how have I loved Does the sun rise in the east? Of course I love you. My love has been constant and true. He's appealing to the history within Israel. So every one of them would have known the story of Jacob and Esau, and he's saying, I, I chose to love Jacob, and I've chosen to love you as his descendants. I'm committed to loving you regardless of your commitment to me. I'm going to love you. Now this gets into an area of theology that is fun, I think, uh, where we kind of have salvation in the Bible. We're kind of given it from two different perspectives, and it's my belief that they're complementary, but we just don't know how. Uh, and so there's mystery there. Uh, but what we have here is an emphasis, if we could look at how salvation works from God's perspective, is a pulling back of the curtain. And we see that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. If someone knows Jesus, it's because God said, I'm going to save you. That one is, is mine. They're lost in their sin. They don't deserve it. But I'm choosing, according to my mercy, to love them. Now, the other perspective on salvation, which is not in our text today, because that's not the point that Malachi is driving home here, is that, that we have to make responsible decisions about God. 
Right? The Bible over and over again calls us to turn from our sin, to repent, and to trust God, to follow Jesus. And you go, well, how do these two things work together? My, my response, I say, I don't know. Uh, the Bible holds both up as true. And so uh, I just kind of say that as a caveat to say God's sovereignty and his love and his grace uh, do not abrogate your responsibility to believe God. Does that make sense? You with me? And so as we look at the life of Jacob and emphasize God's sovereignty, I, I just wanted to make sure we're all kind of on the same page and, and walking in the same direction. This how have you loved us wasn't Esau Jacob's brother. Turn with me to Genesis. I'm going to look at this story a little bit. Genesis chapter 25. Jacob's whole life that we see in Genesis is kind of a struggle for uh, acceptance and blessing. And it starts from very early on. Look at verse 22 of chapter 25. Jacob and Esau are in the once barren womb of Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And we read in verse 22, But the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. Esau in Hebrew means hairy. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Jacob in Hebrew means heel grabber, which was a colloquialism for deceiver or trickster. Harry and uh, the heel grabber, not really creative names at this time in history. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. So Esau's kind of this rugged man's man, and Jacob is a bit of a mama's boy and a homebody. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. He's a bit of a mama's boy too, Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is also why he is named Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau gives away his inheritance and, and all these privileges of the firstborn to Jacob for a pot of stew. It doesn't get much better for Esau either because Jacob is really after 
all the blessings he can get. And so he's also going to swindle Esau out of the blessing that comes from his father, this spoken word of God's future favor and and grace to whomever the blessing is spoken. And so uh, we fast forward a little bit in the story where this event takes place in Genesis chapter 27. And what happens is Isaac is old and he thinks he's going to die. And we're told you can't see Uh, He's preparing to die. And so he calls Esau and he says, hey, go out to the field, kill some food. I would like to eat it. Come back, prepare it for me. And then after I eat it, I will bless you. Well, Rebecca, she is eavesdropping or she just hears this somehow. And so what she does is she gets Jacob and, and right after Esau is going out to hunt some wild game, she says, Jacob, here's the plan. We're going to dress you up like Esau and we're going to put you in front of your daddy, and he is going to bless you instead of Esau. And Jacob's like, Mom, Esau's really hairy. We smell different. Like, Dad is going to know. And she's like, no, trust me. So, So Jacob says, all right. She goes out and kills two goats, makes some food, gives it to Jacob. He throws on his brother's clothing. Uh, He has some hair uh, that he gets from like uh, goats, I think, right? And he he puts on the skins of the goats so he's going to be hairy when his father feels him. him, And uh, he takes this food into his father. And that's where we'll pick up reading in verse 18. When he came to his father, he said, My father. And Isaac answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How did you ever find it so quickly? And he replied, Because the Lord your God made it happen for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Again he asked, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Then he said, Bring it close. And then his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow and worship to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow and worship to you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. Jacob exits the room. If you, the story continues, Esau comes in later, unable to receive the blessing. And so uh, old heel grabber has swindled his brother out of both his birthright and his blessing. And yet, he is not satisfied. His life is in turmoil. He ends up on the run. Uh, He tries to find himself a wife, gets a taste of his own medicine, is swindled into taking two wives. And eventually, 
as he's on the run from Esau again in chapter 32, we have this very strange encounter. Chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This is really random. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated. Break. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he answered, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. So this weird wrestling encounter wherein Jacob wrestles with God. And you see by those last lines there, he recognizes that God could have wrecked him at any point in time that his life was spared. But for whatever reason, he strives with God throughout the night and he holds on and he says, bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He wanted his brother's birthright. He wanted his brother's blessing. And now he wants this man's blessing. And once this man's blessing comes to him, he realizes that the one with whom he wrestled was the one whose blessing he already had. The God who had chosen him. Woo. Jacob gets his blessing from God and his name is changed to Israel. And Israel descends from Jacob as a nation. A couple things. First, For some of us, our life can feel like a struggle for blessing and acceptance. And I want to tell you, I think Jacob had a similar experience. It was only after God changed him that night, changed his name, allowed him to recognize that he had indeed been underneath of God's love his entire life, that Jacob was able to find peace. And likewise, you will not find rest for yourself until you stop struggling with whatever um, angst is within you and grab a hold of God and say, God, bless me. Secondly, I want to point out we have an excellent picture, an illustration of our own salvation in the story of Jacob. Uh, in verse 27, when Jacob is dressing up like Esau, and he goes to, to the father, and he's looking for the father's blessing, we have uh, just a of our own lives. Because what happens when you turn from your sin and become a Christian is you dress up not in your garments, but in the garments of Christ. And you go before the father 
And when he says, who are you? You say, I am your firstborn because you've been united to Christ by faith. And he speaks a kind word. He says, the smell of my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We all need Christ. It is only through Jesus' work on our behalf that we are able to be reconciled with God. And when we hear the message of the gospel and we struggle with this idea that we need to lay down the crown of our own life and submit ourselves to the Lord, it, it rubs us the wrong way. It is a bit of a struggle. But, but what you find on the other side of that is God's tremendous blessing. And what you find when you come to believe in God is that you came to believe because he was pursuing you all along that he had resolved to love you despite yourself. That's really the, the point that I want to drive home here. Like, look at his life, you go, this is not somebody I probably, I don't want to hang out with him. He's not a very good person. So why does God bless him? Because God chose him. Because God was committed to him. The Jacob I will love. So God loved him. It should be tremendously comforting for the Christian when you go, well, why do I love God? Well, because God loved me. Because what happens is, is you recognize in that moment that your salvation is entirely the work of grace. It's because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. And so if you can't earn your salvation, then you can't unearn it. So when you've screwed up for the hundredth time and uh, you've committed that age-old sin and you're like, God, I, I just can't, I want to overcome this sin, how do you even love me? You can be reminded that no, God has loved you. His love isn't contingent upon your performance. He's committed himself to you and he loves you because he loves you. Because he's chosen to. It's a great comfort. Uh, Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a woman who was struggling with understanding the She knew she loved Christ but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never by any possibility, because I am quite sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt, naturally, that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you, and did not get there by force of any goodness in you. You may conclude with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. Malachi says you can know that God loves you, P1, 
people of God because he's chosen to love you and he's committed to keeping his covenant. That's, that's point number one in this. God has chosen to bless you with his love. He's committed to it. You can't question his love because it's going to be steadfast and stalwart and unfailing. It always has been. And then point number two, he's going to say, you know I love you because I chose you and I haven't given you what you deserve, which is the curse. And he's, even so I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, They may build, I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this. And you will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. God is saying to them, I have loved you, I've chosen to love you, what you really deserve for your rebellion against me, for your apathy towards me, for your sin is the curse that Edom will get. You deserve that, but because I've chosen to love you, you get precisely what you do not deserve. Relationship with me. That should stop us in our tracks. I mean, that's the gospel we get what Jesus deserves instead of what we deserve. We get the blessing that is due to him rather than the curses that are due to us when we put our faith in Christ. <clears throat> Paul speaks on this matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul speaks on this matter in Romans 9, <clears throat> verse 6. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended through Isaac. That is, not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For through her sons, had not, although her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. God shows mercy to us, not because of any goodness within us, but because he does what he pleases. It should, it should blow your mind to think that before you were even created, God loved you. 
before you lived even a day in the womb, God loved you. Every day you've lived outside of the womb since then, on your best day and on your worst day, God has loved you, Christian. He's set his love on you. And how, how could you become bored with that? How could you not stand back? How do death that, that we spit in the face of the God of the universe and have said, I want to do things my way. I really know best for my life. It is amazing that God would care for sinners like us. The proof of his love is in his setting his love on us, putting a love for Christ within us. The proof of his love is in the fact that when we've come to trust in Christ, we don't get what we deserve, which is hell. but we get what Christ deserves. All the riches and blessings of heaven. Relationship with God. I do want to point out one more thing here too. Uh, It says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I want you to understand that that hatred on God's behalf is not, not like our hatred, it's not malice. That's not what's being communicated here. Like Esau still experiences God's common grace. Still experiences... um, different aspects of God's blessing in his life. But what hatred means here is an opposition to evil, an opposition to uh, those who would be opposed to God, those outside of his saving grace. And so he just wants to see, wants us to Edom the descendants of Esau will be destroyed. And he pictures Edom here saying to themselves, we're going to to rebuild the ruins. And God says, no, they're they're not going to rebuild the ruins. Edom's one of Israel's enemies, one of those who gloated over them when the temple was destroyed. It actually functions as kind of a synecdoche uh, for all of Israel's enemies. Uh, they, They fight with Israel throughout the Old Testament. And sometimes they're used as just kind of a picture of all of their enemies, all who would oppose Israel. And God's saying, not only have I not given you what you deserve, which proves my love for you, not only have I chosen to love you, which proves my love for you, but your enemies, who are my enemies, will not be victorious. They're not going to be able to rebuild. You will see that they are the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this. And you will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. He's not relegated to a small corner of the universe, but He is sovereign over it all. God has loved you. Christian, God has has, has loved you. Do not fail to be awed by this I want you to know that perhaps 
You are under God's blessing, but you don't yet know it. Haven't yet confessed Christ. And I want you to know that it's God's desire that you would come to know Christ and be saved. Let me read you that famous verse that everybody, uh, they write on billboards and people carry signs to football games, but John 3.16, let me read it to you. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. God desires that you would repent of your sin and come to know Christ. Will you? Or will you continue to hate the light? Good news is that God turns lovers of the darkness into lovers of the light every day. The good news is that he's pursuing you even now with his love and with his message of grace. If you would only turn from your sin and believe. Christian, if ever you doubt your salvation, if ever you doubt the grace of God in your life, turn your attention to the cross. How has he loved you? He's died for you. I always love the line in the song before the throne. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. This is what we are to do when we begin to doubt God's love. To preach the gospel to our downcast souls and remind ourselves, God has loved me. He's chosen to love me. He's taken on flesh to die for me. He's risen from the dead so that I can become like Him and rise to eternal life, everlasting blessing where the food never runs out and the bottle never runs dry, where tears aren't any God has loved you. And you should choose to love God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for valuing silly things above you. For loving entertainment and tertiary things more than we do Christ. Forgive us for being 
more enamored, more enamored with the newest song or the next movie release more so than we are with your love for us. God, forgive us for becoming apathetic in our faith. Forgive us for becoming bored with your word. God, change us. But we thank you that you have set your love on us and that we can't outsin your grace. We thank you for giving us grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you for giving us grace that is greater than our sin. Salvation that we didn't earn and we can't unearn. What great confidence it is to know that we are secure in Christ. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to rest in your sovereign love for us. Allow it to humble us out of ourselves that we might be fully who you've created us to be. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.